collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. super special. I have with me three phenomenal women, three phenomenal doctors, three phenomenal people who are committed heart and soul to the work that they do and who are all willing to kind of discover new paths to be in integrity with their values and their brains at the same time, both with what they know in their hearts and what they know in their minds. So welcome this morning to Dr. Jill Humphreys, Dr. Sonia Rosen, and Dr. Nancy Oriel. As a specification, Dr. Nancy is the only medical doctor. The other uh, two are uh, doctors in, if I get this correctly, education and public administration. Did I get it right? Okay, good. So I just want to say that because we're talking about health systems today, and so I want to qualify that the medical doctor is is Dr. Nancy, um, and the rest of us, you know, will really be talking about the weaving together of health and activism, where we can go from here. So thank you for being here. I'd love for you to start by uh, each of you just like introduce yourselves by telling a story that highlights why health systems are important to you. I lived 15 years of my life in Italy. I was born in the United States, though, and I've been back in the United States for 20 years. And I can say that I've only had health insurance uh, since the Affordable Care Act, commonly known as Obamacare. So I spent basically the first 15 years here managing my own health and uh, with mainly alternative medicine, Reiki, herbalism, alternative, like, exercise, diet, that. And I think one of the reasons why health systems are important to me is, first of all, because being passionate about equity, health systems really highlight inequality and inequity in a way that's, I think, stronger than any other system because health is something we all resonate with. Like, who doesn't want to be healthy? My people in Italy say, basta che sta salute. And so... In terms of like a story, when I first arrived back in the States, so I'm thinking back here, it's like actually it was uh, 2000. Um, Actually, I'd been here a bit and then I left and I came back. Um, I had a really, really severe cold and I ended up in the hospital for one hour in which I got uh, an IV. I was dehydrated. I got a, a stronger cough medicine than was um, stronger cough than that was off the counter, and chest rays, like X-rays to my chest, and I walked away with a fifteen hundred dollar bill. I was a student 
And I was horrified. Like, I was really, really, really horrified with that bill. And I actually didn't pay it for, I think, like 10 years or something until it started showing up on my credit. And then later found found out, like, kind of sort of too late that I actually could have defaulted on it because so much time had gone by that I was no more, I wasn't persecutable anymore, which was, I think, past the statute of limitations, I think is the technical term. I've been horrified about what passes for health care in this country, having come from a country like Italy where it's national health care. And the last thing I'll add is that nowhere in the, for the people who think that national health care would make you less free, nowhere in the United States of America do you hand a credit card to be told, oh, I'll send you the bill later. Like nowhere do you first pay and then find out what the bill is. <laughs> Only in what passes for healthcare, And the fact that people aren't horrified and outraged by it boggles my mind. Yeah, I think I would say I have similar experiences and similar feelings about the system. I'm at a very privileged point in my life where as a faculty member at a university, I have phenomenal health insurance. And even with phenomenal health insurance, I feel like I keep running into really challenging experiences like having to spend hours and hours on the phone to ensure that I can see a provider um, for a specific problem or something, you know, or, you know, fighting about a bill or still paying out of pocket, like a lot of money, you know, thousands of dollars a year that we pay out of pocket, even with excellent health insurance. I guess I also have a lot of family abroad or in countries where they have socialized medicine. And I feel like my experience going to the doctor it's just such a different one than my family. I recently broke my ankle and had a, a lot of exposure to the medical system in the last few months. You know, I'm very thankful that the health insurance that I have, but also it just has become so abundantly clear that it has hurt my health to have to manage like and deal with my health insurance company and the broader system that we live in. It actually harms my health and and I'm a middle-class person who even grew up middle-class and also, you know, has been a teacher in communities that are significantly underserved and, and have a lot of friends who and family grown up working class and stuff. So, you know, the class disparities are tremendous in terms of access to healthcare, but even middle-class people have awful access to healthcare in this country and have to worry about bills. And I think it actually takes a, a toll on our health, on our well-being, to have to think about whether or not we can afford to, you know, ride in an ambulance to go somewhere or see a doctor. Is it worth it to go to the emergency room? Should I take my kids to the emergency room and pay my $150 copay? It's awful. So my story is just a general story of like every single time I go to the doctor, I have to make a decision. Is it worth it? Because, you know, it's going to take a toll on our finances. I guess my story is that the way the system is designed leaves out so many people in so many ways and not just insurance. I mean, in so many aspects, my stories, I'm an anesthesiologist and I just have to shout out to all of my colleagues who are out there on the front line, risking their life every day. I mean, so the healthcare system we have when this is over, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like sort of prefacing everything is my story is what we were and I have no idea what we're going to be. 
But uh, I started a mobile clinic called the Family Van that drives around uh, Roxbury and Dorchester and Mattapan. And it's for people who don't tend to use the health system, you know, otherwise it's for people in the under-resourced communities. Now we have lots of doctors in Boston, so it's not about getting people to a doctor, it's about bridging the gap between people's lives and the healthcare system. Started it because I was an obstetric geologist and there was a lot of conversation about infant mortality and that was kind of what inspired me. But when we opened the door, it was really clear that men came on as much as women. So it was called the family van because it's about families. I thought it was about bridging access to healthcare. Uh, and one day I was on the van and we drove past a woman and her child and I just looked at them and started crying. You know, and the woman was really nicely dressed and the child was all perfectly manicured to go to school. You know, it was in a poor neighborhood and it was clear this woman had spent a lot of effort to get her child ready for school. I just started crying and I didn't quite understand why until somebody asked me why did I start the family van. So I thought about the fact that I'm from a working poor family and my father died early um, because he was working poor, meant he was working, could have been um, managed, um, but there was, you know, you can't work three jobs to get your kids through college in order and take care of your own health. When I look at the many programs, it always felt like the working poor was just not on anyone's radar. When healthcare is designed so you, it just doesn't fit your life. And when you actually look at how it's designed, it doesn't fit too many people's lives. That's my story and that's why I'm here. But I just pray that the healthcare system that emerges from this has seen some of its own problems and can redesign itself. Uh, so I'll just say that what's interesting to me is coming out of a middle-class Black family, parents were what I call the historical civil rights generation who made sure that all of their children had the best education and including going to our annual medical checkups. So I grew up sort of in this culture of you go to the dentist every six months and you go to the doctor every year because they didn't. You know, my parents were from the South. But as an adult, I fall in that category of adjunct faculty. So I am part of that contingent labor that um, at times did not have health care because uh, there are too many PhDs and not enough jobs. So for a number of years, I swung two and three jobs teaching in New York. I was that individual who highly educated PhD, which people could not understand. How in the world could a Black woman with a PhD not have a full-time job? Everybody wants you. Well, no, that's, that's not true. The way our system is structured, that's another one of those false narratives. So I have the experience not being able to provide medical coverage for myself, except for the grace of my mother carrying my health care up until my 40s. And then, of course, I will say about the CUNY adjuncts organizing, being a member of the Professional Staff Congress, fought for health care coverage for their adjunct faculty. And that's how I ended up having health care coverage for a number of years. But the story that I want to say that stands out most for me is because I did not grow up under socialized medicine or national medicine was every time I traveled to Cuba, or every time I just finished working in Ethiopia and uh, where I lived, I did not live in Addis, which is the capital. And that's where the international healthcare uh, services are. Um, I lived in Bahadar, which is where the hospitals that everyday Ethiopians visit, you know, go to. And that's where I went. And what was amazing to me was here is this country that's considered one of the top seven poorest countries in the world. And when I went to the hospital, obstetrics, and 
uh, had to stand in tremendously long lines with everyone else who was coming in primarily from the rural areas because it's the major regional hospital is what was so amazing to me was that number one, they treated me here. I was a foreigner. Number one, the doctors were like, right. even though I look like everyone else, they treated me when they, right. But number two, when, when I had to be referred for, um, I guess like a, an ultra scan, some other technical, whatever it is that they do, that doctors do, I thought I was going to have to pay something phenomenal out of pocket. And when I did the actual calculation, it came up to like no more than maybe 40 bucks for a ultra scan. And I know that if I were here in the U.S., <laughs> number one, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had a Visa card because I don't have <laughs> You can I pay $40 have, for breathing would, in the room with right, the ultra scan in the United States. I was absolutely amazed States. that in Ethiopia, I was amazed, right, just in terms of here is a country that has had tremendous challenges, I mean, beyond my belief. They make sure to the best of their ability that people can have access to quality health care. It would have been like $400 for that here in the U.S. And it's like 40 bucks, right, in Ethiopia. And I said, I remembered Ethiopia after, uh, Ethiopia was a monarchy. Haile Selassie was the last monarch of Ethiopia. And in 1972, there was a revolution that overthrew the monarchy, and it ushered in what they call the Derg, which was a Marxist government. Of course, folks, there's a lot of people fall on both sides of the benefits and negatives of the socialist and Marxist government. But one of the outcomes was an attempt to deal with the inequality or lack of access to, in this particular case, health care for the majority of the population, that meant the peasants. And so part of that, what I was benefiting from was that major transformation that occurred in the provision of social services to the best of their ability to their entire population, including someone who was a foreigner. So I just wanted to kind of share that coming out of a capitalist medical system, the United States, and then experiencing a socialist medical system in Ethiopia stood out in my mind in terms of the affordability and the access and the care that I received and so I definitely am someone who believes that our medical system needs not just reform, but really transformation. Yeah, and I can tell you no scan would be $40 or $400 because I've been getting bills. You know, when your, your health insurance sends you what you would have been charged and what they paid. And I've been getting bills for every stage of my treatment as like with my x-rays. I had a chest x-ray at one point in recently. Like I had two emergency room visits. I had a surgery, an overnight stay in the hospital. And I think at this point, I didn't add it all up exactly, but I think at this point it would have cost me something like $35,000 or something like that for the amount of treatment that I've had or $40,000 if I had not been covered by my health insurance. And that is just for like a broken ankle, a few emergency room visits, a surgery and PT and like follow-up visits, you know? It's absurd. So the idea that, is that you could pay $40 for a scan as a foreigner in a place where you don't even pay taxes, you know, it, it's like Americans can't even imagine that, you know. It's hard to, I'm not a health economist. I almost feel like I shouldn't be talking. What I see from inside the healthcare system, on one side, the amazing, unbelievably expensive miracles that are happening. And then on the other side, 
everyday things that aren't happening, this unbelievable dichotomy, and also the financing of it. I mean, how do you pay for a miracle on one side, which there are people who then demand miracles, the other side, the people who can't afford anything. Again, it, it's sort of the, the whole design of the system seems to clearly money's a huge part, but the way it's delivered is a huge part. And the face it puts forward is a huge part. In this moment, we're sort of seeing how the virus is clearly affecting some populations so much more than others. And the reasons for that are so multi-layered and all of that is what we need to address. Thank you for that. There were three highlights from your individual episodes that I just want to put into the pot here. Uh, not necessarily to change the direction, but just to add other ingredients and then stir and cook. I see conversations oftentimes as that. And one was that, Nancy, you had mentioned that what had you, Dr. Nancy, what had you become really passionate about systems was that your dad had taught you to recognize a tree from the veins in the wood and that you had been raised to look for patterns. And so as you entered the medical field, you were still learning patterns. Dr. Jill, in your session, we really went into depth of like the historical foundation of our health system and how the culture, the morals, the political tensions, the interests at the time forged what now looks like a medical system. And in particular, the need to control women's bodies and ensure social control through the control of women's bodies also played a role in what became public and what didn't. And in your case, Dr. Sonia, there was this really important point, and I'm going to share a story right after it and then leave it back out to you all. We talked about how the capitalism permeates the culture. It actually came out in the political systems episode a couple weeks prior that our political system, which is capitalism, permeates our culture. So, and you just said this earlier as well, we are accustomed in the United States to having that pause right after we get hurt. That is, can I afford it? Or can I self-manage this? I just wanted to add, because um, you had me think about it, Dr. Sonia. I spent a lot of time working in Ethiopia, probably in total about like five months across three years. And one particular instance, I had to get a full checkup because I was signing up to work for the UN and they want to know everything about you, including they want a medical checkup. Although I didn't have to go to the field, they still wanted a medical checkup. And I went to the doctor in Ethiopia who was just a lovely man, just like most Ethiopians I know are extremely graceful, but he was like graceful and warm-hatted and beautiful. And I said to him, because at this point I'm very familiar with taking charge of my health, right? So I said to him, I expect you to confirm that everything's well. I know that I'm doing well. It's just a matter of getting it on a piece of paper. At which he looked at me with the sweetest face ever. He looks at me and he says, we will confirm then. Let's confirm that. And it just made me think about this piece that because our system is capitalist and capitalizes on sickness, going to the doctor is the identification of disease. When you have a system that's based on the health of the whole population, there is more of a focus on health. Like if I had said that to an American doctor, I think I would have gotten a little bit of a different reaction. Perhaps, maybe, maybe not. It depends on their perspectives because there are also a variety of doctors. This commercialization of sickness 
permeates our culture everywhere. Mm. So I'm wondering like thoughts around that or what we've said so far, it can be something else you can also take in a different direction or activism and what's happening in the face of where we are. Folks, this is chill. You know, I will say the couple of trips that I've spent going to Cuba, which I love, I love the Cuban people so much. You know, every place I've gone, I can say, I think I've probably experienced their healthcare system in some context. And so what I learned, of course, both studying about comparative healthcare systems of a master's in public health, particularly looking at Cuba, is that their model is different. They have a different value system, you know? So societies, as I would teach, as I would share with my students, in order to understand our society, to understand our values, because our institutions follow our values. So in Cuba, their focus is on health and wellness. Therefore, their educational system, the way it's organized, their lifespan. So I think they have the longest lifespan in the Americas. People, you know, octogenarians, and I don't know what you call it if you're in your 90s, but um, their model of making sure that you have a physician at the neighborhood level. So this physician at the neighborhood level that lives in the community, first of all, and therefore is part of the community, people actually know who this individual is as opposed to when I go to Kaiser because they've assigned me a physician (laughs) who doesn't live in my community, right? Who doesn't necessarily share the same values and who definitely doesn't know my history as an African-American and the mistrust that African-Americans have had with the medical system and therefore don't understand why I come in asking certain questions, having already studied and read up on whatever it is, the condition I have, and they're shot. (laughs) Right, that they're actually having to engage someone who's questioning them about what they're prescribing me. It comes out of a particular historical context. It's not just because my educational level. So when I look at Cuba's model of the way in which they envision providing an overall baseline, I think, level of health and wellness for their society is very different than the U.S. The U.S. has, I think, and it's been a long time since I like did my public health stuff, but public health model versus a medical model, right, says it all in terms of the values. And even though many physicians have embraced a public health model, it is not the dominant model. At least the American Medical Association will not let it allow it to be the dominant model. But perhaps if we were able to continue to have a movement where the activism comes in for those folk who do activism around, I guess, our, our healthcare systems, you know, shifting to a public health model or shifting to just a basic human rights model. Healthcare is a human right. What does that really mean in the context of the United States? That's kind of what I think about. This is Sonia. I would also add to that, that I, I think it is, that sort of framework makes total sense in a white supremacist capitalist system, right? Because in white supremacy and capitalism, we come from an assumption that some people are expendable and that we are willing to sacrifice a certain percentage of our population. We're seeing that right now in the COVID-19 pandemic, right? A lot of the narrative around the, the protests that are coming up in, cap, in state capitals right now is that, well, you know, it's only a certain percentage of people who are dying and that's fine, it's worth it. Now, if we look at those numbers, right, we know that it's disproportionate number of people of color, especially black people dying, Native Americans Navajo Nation has been suffering tremendously, right? Like absurd numbers in certain communities. Earlier, Nancy, you mentioned the the thing about frontline workers, right? Like that we know who, like poor people are the frontline workers, right? We know that 
like in certain communities, like especially in urban spaces that we know it's black and brown communities where we get most of the frontline workers, people are more at risk, right? So we've made a decision together that those people are expendable. And our whole healthcare system is based around this idea that a certain percentage of people in our, in our world are expendable, that their health doesn't matter as much. We know that it's black and brown people, that it's poor people, right? We know it's Native American people, we know immigrants from refugees, from poor places. Like we know that those are the people who we don't value as much. And in our, our healthcare system is a really clear illustration of not valuing those folks because those are the people who don't have access. Those are the people who only get to encounter the healthcare system when it's acute and there's a crisis, right? And those are the people who end up also in tremendous debt and can lose their livelihoods because of health crises or can lose houses or can end up in terrible circumstances around debt. And I think like in a capitalist system, a white supremacist capitalist system, that the logic of that makes sense, right? Like, because that's how capitalism works, that like we use people for their labor to the degree to which they're useful and we don't invest in them except however much we need to in order to get their labor value. And I think that our health system in every system, we see that, right? But the healthcare system, it's the most obvious, right? You know, we literally let people die because they can't afford to pay for health or because they have, you know, like Nancy said, they have like three jobs and they, they don't have access to healthcare or because we put them in circumstances where they have more risks because of the kinds of work that they do or their access to healthy foods or whatever it is, right? This is just an obvious absurdity about our society. I guess maybe because I grew up with family just elsewhere. I'm Arab and a live family in France, in Canada. It doesn't make any sense to me that we would have a healthcare system isn't actually about valuing every person's health and well-being. I think it was Jill who said, we have a, a sick care system. When you look at countries around the world of all different political styles, when they have a healthcare system that actually takes health down to where people actually are, you get better outcomes. There are two things that I think play into this. Well, one is because of the way I guess the metocracy uh, that we are, aside from being capitalist, it's all about, you get more if you are prove yourself to be greater. And we design the system on that kind of thinking. And we then respect and our value so follows that pattern. That's not a very helpful pattern. We need to sort of respect everybody for who they are. In respecting everyone, we also need to respect everyone's expertise. So um, I was on a webinar yesterday talking about the role of community health workers. It is so clear that we need people who actually are part of the community, who understand community health, that see people in a different way. I mean, when you spend 12 years learning about the molecular mechanism in some cell, and when you look at what we're learning every day about COVID, thank God people have been looking at molecular mechanisms because we're barely beginning to understand it. And it is taking really good hard thinking to figure that out. Okay, so I am glad that those experts are doing that. But then I look at what we need out on in people's lives and in people's communities. So when you look at the healthcare system in other countries and you look at the sort of the social care system in the book, The um, American Healthcare Dilemma, Why Are We Spending More and Getting Less? What they showed was 
almost everybody spends the same amount of money. It's just where they spend it. And if you spend all of your dollars on, at the miracle end of medicine, there's nothing left to spend at the family community end of, of health. And it's because it's, it needs to be a continuum from medicine down to health to life. It's our values. I mean, our pattern, our, our institutions reflect our values. Sue, thank you all for what you're contributing this morning. We've been talking a lot about like the problems and the gaps, and I love everything that each of you has highlighted because you're all bringing like your own perspective inside of your life experiences. So shifting towards like collective power, if it were up for you to like reach out, there's a person on this call right now who's fired up, as outraged as you are, or more, and they're ready to do something. What recommendations would you make for them, for us to leverage our collective power, given what we're experiencing right now? This is Sonia. I think that there's multiple ways that we sort of build power around this issue and around any issue, but power happens in different ways and collective power happens in different ways and it's sort of mobilized in different ways. But I would say one thing is there are absolutely organizations organizing around this. And I think we have the best chance at this moment of getting single payer healthcare at the state level, not at the federal level. I think that there's been a lot of influence from the Bernie Sanders campaign and also a little bit of the Elizabeth Warren campaign. Amen um, to that. Amen yeah. to that. I think that those campaigns, especially Sanders, has really sort of put this idea in people's heads in a different way and kind of gotten people excited about the notion of a single payer system, what they call Medicare for All. I don't think because really at this point, now that Sanders is out of the race, sort of left with Biden, in my opinion, I don't think Biden has much of a chance of beating Trump. So, and even if he did, he said he would veto a Medicare for All bill anyway. Neither of them is for it. And I think we're going to have a lot more time to sort of build the work to get a single payer system at, at the federal level. But at the state level, there's a lot of work being done in various states to get single payer health care. And I think that could be quite powerful because there's a lot of opportunity at that level to get it. So I think organizing is one thing. I also think just in general, sort of doing the ground level grassroots work of shifting the discourse around healthcare and healthcare as a human right versus healthcare from a consumer model. I think that it's meaningful. We're seeing, like I said earlier, I mentioned these protests in state capitals. Those protests are being funded by billionaires. You know, they're being funded by right-wing organizations and they're being organized by those organizations. These are not grassroots protests. It's what we call astroturf activism in social movement theory. Those are folks being mobilized through what we call collective action frames, a discourse of like personal freedom, this liberty. It's a very libertarian discourse. You want, you can even look like they're appropriating slogans yes. from the left, yes. which is actually quite a libertarian thing, right? Because libertarians have a very, in some ways, a very leftist critique of state power, right? Almost an anarchist critique of state power. But their their solutions are different. Their solutions are to say like, so we should just not have any government, right? Just take government out of the picture. And I think, so this critique is ironically coming from quite a fascist regime, right? So like Betsy DeVos, the Koch brothers, these are the families that are funding this protest to sort of around this discourse of liberty, of freedom and choice, right? 
I think it's meaningful to actually challenge that discourse, but really at the grassroots level. Like if you have family who are from central PA and might have those beliefs or might sort of hear that and kind of feel like, oh yeah, open it all up because businesses need to flourish or, or like we don't need single payer because I want choice with my doctors or something like that. There's like all these straw man arguments that I think if you can educate yourself and really develop sort of a way of speaking to people who have a stake in it, we all have a stake in the healthcare system. There's not a single person in this country or anywhere who doesn't have a stake in their healthcare system, right? Because we rely on it. I do think there are some very compelling arguments or claims that we can make for people that help them to sort of, to see like where they could personally benefit. So I do think that's meaningful work as well. Even if you can't do the sort of bigger organizing work, don't be shy about engaging with other people about sort of shifting that discourse. You clarified something for me because I've been watching here in LA and I'm assuming that it's occurring in cities where there are larger, that are immigrant-based cities like LA, New York, both cities that I worked in and lived in. So here in LA, I am a 15-year National Lawyers Guild member. National Lawyers Guild is the oldest civil liberties law association, probably know the spill, spill in the country, right? It protects our civil liberties. And so as a legal observer, we have been having both local and national conversations about activist organizations who request our legal observer assistance should we still provide that legal support in the time of COVID? And I assisted in writing our COVID LO protocols here. But what I've seen in terms of organizing, and you clarified what I was trying to figure out, what is going on with the discourse? And that is, I see activism around releasing of individuals who are in detention centers, right, immigrants and jails. They are now car, I think they're called, they're called drive protests people getting into their cars and driving. And I've been sort of sitting back thinking in my mind, is this an effective form of protest? And I don't know what the nature of this pandemic is because once again, there are other, I don't know if they're libertarians or who are, have a whole other underground media that are talking about that, the medical side of what this virus is and how it's being constructed, right? But then I see people mobilizing around and still doing the protest and then calling our support, legal support, and it causing really sort of intense conversation in the legal community around, do we still provide this legal support? And it's fallen out on, yes, we have our LO COVID protocol. So if you choose to still go out and legal observe and support the protest, it's, we're, I guess, saying that it's individual choice, even though organizationally we're acknowledging that you should have certain safety protocols. But The question I have, though, is they're using the same libertarian sort of discourse, or it's our right to protest. There's this attempt from the federal government to clamp down on protest. So they're using the same discourse that the AstroTurf activists are using. That's what I'm hearing, right? And I'm trying to understand, how do I make sense of this? Because I know what you just said, that the AstroTurf activists, there's another agenda. Yeah. Right. Then the activists who are actually saying that we need to protect our First Amendment right to protest and this reaction against what they believe an authoritarian sort of government exercising or using the COVID as a cover to clamp down or erode our civil liberties. That's one piece of it that I'm trying to really think through. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece, just as an educator, as a professor, is that when I teach 
what I've realized and recognized for a very long time, I've been teaching for a while, almost two decades now, our young people have no idea about the notion of this, the way in which our values shape, you can either shape a good into a private good, public good, a total good, right? And that healthcare in the context of the US, it could be a public good, right? right? It doesn't have to be a private good or mixed based good. Like they have no sort of concept or understanding that we determine, our society determines the way in which these social services are constructed. And then therefore they can change. When I think about public education, part of the activism piece, I feel like there's a huge education component around explaining to people that we, the society can shape the way in which we think about quote unquote entitlements. Like I don't even like the word entitlement. Social good for the betterment of our society, right? It could be a social good. So just sort of that piece in terms of the, I guess the educational and the mobilizing and the activist component, that's just sort of what came to my mind when I was listening to you speak. So when the social good is not a current value, right? Like how do we cultivate the social good as a value in a society that where that has not directed our history? Nancy, I hear you like, go, go for it. I saw an interesting article the other day, which showed the curve we've all seen, what COVID looks like if we just continue along our merry way and what happens if we social distance. And I actually think this moment in time, so Sonia, you're absolutely right. There are people protesting on every side and I can't even wrap my head around where that comes from and what that leads to. So that's a huge problem. But when you look at what the majority of people have done, people have chosen to socially isolate, even people for whom that is really hard. You know, socially isolating in a house with a bunch of generations in a small space and running out of food and supplies. And people have chosen to do that because it's for the social good. They look at, we all understand that curve, that we can be part of the solution. I think there's a lesson in that. Again, given the life that I've led, this moment in time is so transformative. And the question is, what will we transform into? And that one graph that we individually chose to, you know, social distance enough to help bring the curve down so that we wouldn't overwhelm. I mean, I think that says a lot about what we can do. It doesn't mean that the world is a bell-shaped curve and we're going to have, have everything on the edges, but that's what we have mostly chosen to do and succeeded since we have seen success of collective action. And that, to me, is pretty cool. I would say, though, that when people are choosing to social distance, they're empowered by the shutdowns, right? So, like, I choose to social distance, but if my university opened, I would have to be there or else I get fired. Like, I can't not show up to work, you know, because I feel like I need to social distance. And I think that's where the discourse of the protest makes a difference. Going back to what you said, Jill, about understanding the protests and, and sort of thinking of it in, in relation to a, a public good. In my field, we talk about the commons, right? Like the commons <laughs> as like sort of uh, the bigger spaces that we all inhabit and that are public spaces, right? That they, that they belong to everybody. Neoliberal capitalism, it constrains what is considered the commons, you know? So certain groups gotten historically excluded from the commons, right? 
in many ways. We can have examples of like segregation in the South or undocumented immigrants and what access they have to particular public spaces or the tension that you were talking about earlier around like what discourses get used around the like First Amendment rights and is partly about sort of a question of a conflict over the commons, right? Like who gets access to the, who gets, who gets to claim it. And ironically, what we should be seeing, like if we want to think about like who feels most impacted by these closures, we should be seeing black and brown people, especially in urban areas, rising up and feeling like expressing outrage, like to reopen, we have to reopen because those are the people who have been disproportionately impacted by the closures and by the shutdown economy. Those are always going to be the people who are going to be disproportionately impacted. And that's not what we've been seeing. And when I think about the difference between astroturf activism and grassroots activism, astroturf being like the metaphor, it looks like grassroots, but it's not actually grassroots. It's the plastic version of grassroots, right? It's a fake version. The difference is in the agenda, right? So we still can see like, you know, probably those protests are populated by poor people. They're probably populated by like working class people. They're probably populated by middle-class people. They're not like different than us in their demographics, except that they're whiter, you know, because you're not going to find three people like us in those protests, probably because they're organized by white supremacist groups. That's what I mean by the reason why they're whiter, but they are advocating to maintain or sort of strengthen the status quo (laughs) rather than to challenge the status quo for justice causes. Right. So like the difference between the protests to liberate people from an unjust criminal justice system, right? That we, where we know people are getting sicker and sicker and don't have access to the kind of medical care that they need and are being jailed for reasons that are at, like, even if you believe in jail, the reasons why people are being imprisoned are absurd. It's like mostly nonviolent crimes, drug related crimes. It's stuff that we shouldn't be like sticking people in prison for long periods of time, even. And I say this as a prison abolitionist. I don't think prison is a very useful way to do anything difference between that and the sort of claim that like we just need to like open everything up to make capitalism run better there's a really different claims they're they're laying claim to a very different to very different ideas about what the commons are and who has who should have access to it all right so your final thought you have one minute each and i want to leave you with the question that nancy put out to us which is what is the society we're going to transform into like what can we transform into as your last thought the family van team have been calling the people that we serve. We can't be out on the streets, so we're calling everyone we can. And we're having sort of connecting with our churches and you know with everyone in our communities. And what I'm struck by is people's concern for each other. Everybody is reaching out to everybody in every way. And we have people making masks and then we're delivering them. They see the collective action of getting us all through this moment. To me, that's a sign of hope that that collective action is now in the fore. You know, so I'm a spiritualist. I'm very much a spiritualist. I'll just say trans-spiritualist, having studied and worked and lived in many different cultures. And so for me, I look at this as a moment. I believe that we are in another historical moment in our, I guess, species, or not just species, but just sort of evolution of our world however people want to define that. I am looking at to what extent will this invisible virus force us as a species? What's coming to my mind is rethink what we are in our relationship to not just to each other, but to the world. 
I mean, to our like other sentient beings. I mean, I do a lot more than just sort of this academic work around our species. And so I am hoping that, because it is force, will force us to think more deeply, to think about what kind of world do we want to live in? We don't have to live in the current states that we're in. The war, the so-called scarcity of resources, because that's constructed. What would really allow us, what type of envisioning of a different type of world would allow us to really be more, um, that we live in an ecosystem. Everything can't be intellectually like expressed. I'm just going to leave it at that because that's where I am as I'm sheltering in house, to be quite honest with you. So I'm not going to ask how to get in touch with you all because I asked you on your individual shows and it's on our website. So uh, just go to collectivepowermedia.com if you want to get in touch with these brilliant folks. Thank you for being here. Thank you for a great show. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.